Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so Philippians chapter 4. And we did not quite get all the way done with where we were ended up at last week, but we're going to pick up in verse 8 of Philippians chapter 4. So let's read verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. In verses 8 and 9, we are given two verbs of things we're supposed to do. One is to think about these things, and then put into practice these things. And so Paul gives a list here of all of these things, types of things, that we are to think about or consider. Um, the Greek word there in verse 8, think about these things, to consider, to reckon, to think deeply. Um, it's a present tense type verb, so continually, constantly be thinking about these things. Now, what are these things that we're to constantly be thinking or putting our mind on? Well, obviously, things that are gospel-centered, things about the Lord, things about Him. And so Paul gives, this is not a comprehensive list by any stretch of the imagination, but he lists some things here. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, we could just fly by that verse and say, okay, we're supposed to think about these good things. But what I want us to do is I want us to look at each one of these words, and then I want to give you some scriptures to think about thinking about these things, because Paul says, think about these things. So, whatever is true, whatever is true is the first one he has there. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So when we're here to think about things that are true, it could be how we think about other people. Are we thinking falsely about others? Are we being accusatory? Are we, um, are we thinking thoughts of, of, of deceit towards others? Whatever is true. Colossians 1.5 Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you've heard the word of truth, the gospel. What is true? The gospel. So constantly be thinking about things that are true. The truths. The gospel. The truths of Scripture. As opposed to lies. Let's just stop for a moment. Let's talk. This is not in your notes, but this is this just popped into my head. Lies. Almost every sin begins with a lie that either Satan or your flesh are going to tell you. And it's a battle for truth. So why do you sin? Oftentimes you sin because you choose to believe a lie 
as opposed to believe the truth. And so these lies can come in all different types of forms. Like, for example, what would be one lie that would come into your, to your mind? Well, I'm not going to get caught, so it's okay. Or there's no consequences, so it's okay. Or God really wants me to enjoy myself, so it's okay. I mean, whatever type of lie pops into your mind, at that point, you've got to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, ask Him to help you believe the truth. Think about what's true. When you focus on the truth, when you focus on what's, on tr what's true, it's going to combat the lies. And, and the world tells you lies all the time. The world's telling you lies. Your flesh is telling you lies. Satan's telling you lies. All the time, you're being bombarded with lies. And the only way that you can fight the lies is with the truth. And, how, and where does it start? It starts in your mind. That's why he says, think about these things. Whatever is true. Whatever is honorable. The next thing he lists is honorable. Titus 2.2. 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified. There's the, the word there. Self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older men. Um, be, be an example. Be um, dignified. Be, be honorable. Uh, Titus 3.8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. So that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So good works, things that would bring glory to God. Those things are honorable, things that are true. Keep thinking about, Paul says, thirdly there, whatever's just. Think about things that are just. Um, Revelation 15.3, And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Now, I'm not going to have you go back and read Revelation 15 right now. But if you go back and read Revelation 15, the saints in heaven are praising God for pouring out His wrath on His enemies. God is being just. And so God's ways are just. God's ways are true. Thinking about whatever's just, the ways of God, the truth of God, things that are honorable. Think about things that are pure. 2 Corinthians 11.2, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. The, this idea of the church um, having purity uh, 1 Timothy 5.22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. James 3.17, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. 1 John 3.3, 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself because he is pure. So pure thoughts. So think about all these things. Continually be thinking about things that are true as opposed to lies. And you can do the opposite here. Let's think about the opposite of these for a moment. What's the opposite of whatever is true? What's the opposite of true? False. False. Whatever is honorable. What's the opposite of honorable? Dishonorable. Dishonorable. Whatever is just. Unjust. Unjust. Whatever is pure. Unjust. Impure. Okay, so... We're to be constantly as believers to be thinking about these types of things. 
um, pure, holy, honorable. Um, and then he says lovely. Whatever's lovely. Interesting word there. Um, Psalm 84, 1 through 2. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Better is one day. That's the better is one day. How lovely is your dwelling place. Thinking about dwelling in the presence of the Lord. Whatever's lovely. Whatever's commendable. Whatever's commendable. Second Corinthians 6, 3-8. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. <clears throat> but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. By great endurance, and afflictions, and hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger... By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, yet are true. All the things that Paul went through, he was still had, had a clean conscience that he had not <clears throat> had fault in anybody's eyes. Whatever's excellent. Psalm 150, verse 2. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. 1 Peter 2, 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And what else do we have there? Oh, there's another passage. 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. If there's anything worthy of praise, this is the last one, praiseworthy. Anything worthy of praise? Psalm 18.3, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from my enemies. There's a lot of old songs. I will call upon the Lord. I mean... A lot of the psalms go, go good to music. So Paul says all these things continually, constantly be meditating, thinking, filling your mind with these types of things. So here's the question. Where and how do you do that? Where do you find those things? Do you just sit down and like empty your mind and say, Lord, fill me with... Where do you go to get that stuff? In the scriptures. Okay. The more that you read the scriptures and the more that you see God in the scriptures in Christ, the more you can focus in on him and the more in your prayer life. And so um, it's kind of convicting when you think about it, at least for me, because I will be real honest with you. Um, after Wednesday nights, I, I, I will go home and I will sit in my easy chair and I will watch Arrow. My favorite TV shows, okay? I watched Flash last night and Legends of Tomorrow. I'm going to watch Arrow tonight, okay? Those are shows I'm not going to miss. And so I'll veg out and watch Arrow, and I'll just, and then maybe I'll catch SportsCenter or then something dumb, and the next thing I know, I've spent two hours sitting in front of a screen. Now, I'm not saying watching TV is bad, okay? I'm not saying going home and vegging out is bad, but I'm also thinking, where, how could I have used that time to think about things that are praiseworthy or excellent or commendable. Um, how often do we use our time to think about these things? And um, those things are not going to just come to you naturally. 
Because the world is not going to give you those things. It's going to take you taking time to constantly be thinking about those types of things. And so I would just challenge us all. How are we we filling our minds? How are we spending our time? What are we doing to make sure that our minds are being filled with these types of things? Because that's where the battle starts is in your mind. The more your mind is saturated. What is Romans 12? I don't have it in here, but let's just turn there real quick. What does Romans 12, uh, 1 through 2 tell us? Um, pretty, Pretty famous passage of scripture there. But it talks about the mind. Actually, um, this is like a Romans 12, 2. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your what? Mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, What's the world going to do? The world wants to conform you to its image. And what is the world's image? All the things that are opposite of what Paul just mentioned. And the world's going to want you to, to take in those things. Paul says, no, you need to be renewing in your mind, be transformed in the renewing of your mind. Then you're able to discern what God's will is. How do you do that? You keep on constantly thinking about these things that are praiseworthy and excellent and true and honorable and all, all the things that really are, are, when you think about it, it's just Christ and his glory. Just thinking about Christ and his glory, things of the gospel, things of, of him. Um, so when you're, when you're depressed, when you're down, when you're afraid, when you believe lies, what's, what's the best thing you can do? Pray. Stop and just think about the glories of the gospel. Just talk, think about Jesus. Okay? So the first verb he has there is think. Now in verse 9, he gives the second command. Practice. What you've learned from me, what you've received from me, what you've heard from me, what you've seen in me, practice these things. Put these things into practice. Keep on continually practicing them. Now, obviously, Paul is talking specifically to a group of people who learned firsthand from him. What you learned from me, what you received from me, what you heard in me, what you've seen in me. That's a pretty bold statement for Paul to say that, isn't it? Imitate me. What you've seen, how you've seen me live, what you've seen me teach, all the things that I've taught you, the things I've shown you by example and by teaching, you are to continually put those into practice. So it involves both doctrine, what you've heard, what you've learned, and example, what you've seen. Keep on putting those things into practice. And James has something to say about that. James 1, 22 through 25 be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Okay? Now we're going to get to the conclusion of the letter. So let's look at verse 10 through 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. 
In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Okay. I think I skipped a slide. Oh. When you diligently pursue Christ through prayer, thinking deeply about gospel truths and consistent obedience, he fills your heart with unspeakable joy and peace. That was kind of the first part of chapter 4. Now, notice how Paul is going to shift gears here. And he talks about joy again. I rejoiced. But this whole last section deals with financial stewardship and giving and sharing. And basically, um, they were concerned for Paul's welfare. Paul's in prison. They were concerned for Paul's welfare. And they voluntarily, this is what's happening, I'll give you the background. The church, the Philippian church, voluntarily decided to give money to support Paul, and they gave that through Epaphroditus. But Paul didn't quote-unquote need the gift, but he accepted it with joy. Now, one thing we know about the Philippian church, were they a very rich and wealthy, prosperous church, or were they a poor, needy church? They were poor and needy. We find out in 2 Corinthians, Paul mentions this. In 2, Paul, 2 Corinthians, Paul's basically getting on the Corinthians saying, Listen, Corinthians, you guys are wealthy and you're not giving. But the Philippian church and the Thessalonian church, those churches are like extremely poverty-stricken and they've given more than you. So this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. The churches of Macedonia include Philippi, Thessalonica, Achaia, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So they voluntarily gave to help the Jerusalem church that was struggling. And they voluntarily helped Paul in his imprisonment. But what made Paul so joyful when he was in prison? What does Paul say in verse 11? What does Paul say in verse 11? Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be, what? Content. Is contentment something you can go buy off the shelf at Walmart? (laughs) Notice the wording Paul says. I have, what? Learned. So it's something that you have to learn. In whatever situation. So you learn contentment through situational situations. I don't know if that's a word. You learn contentment through being in different situations. It's not something, it's not a commodity you can say, okay, I want to go get contentment, God give it to me. How do you normally, how does Paul, how has Paul learned contentment? Through all these different situations. Okay? In 2 Corinthians 9 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency and all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The word sufficiency there is the same Greek word for contentment. Think about how those relate to each other. You are content. You have everything you need. God has sufficiently supplied you with everything you need. 1 Timothy 6.6, Paul says... Godliness with contentment is great gain. 
Now, let's talk about contentment for a moment. Do you have control over your circumstances? Sometimes you do. God ordains life circumstances for you in order to teach you contentment. What does our human nature want to do? Do we naturally find ourselves being content? What's the opposite of contentment? Let's just list. Let's list on the board here. What are, and and there, may be, there may be one or many, but you just list them out. What are, what's the opposite of contentment? What are some things that you can think about? What? Bitterness. Bitterness. Okay. What else? Being anxious. Anxious. Okay. What else? Okay, scared or frightened, fear. Okay, I heard somebody else over here. Greed. Greedy, yeah. What else? Complaining. What else? Okay, worrying. Anything else? Maybe frustration, maybe? Bitterness. Bitterness was up there. Um, let's add one more, maybe impatience. Anybody want to add anything else? Annoyed. Annoyed, okay. <laughs> annoyed. Avoid the annoyed. Okay. So, all right, so we've got a list here. Annoyed, impatient, bitterness, anxious, scared, frightened, greedy, complaining, worrying, frustration. What... All right, so let me just ask you a question. How many of you have experienced one, at least one of those this week? <laughs> okay. And maybe multiple ones, okay? And so Paul says, listen, not that these things aren't real and not that you don't go through these things. Paul says, I've learned, I've learned to be content in any situation. I've learned to be content. Now, we have to ask the question, well, what did Paul, what did Paul experience? In his life. Well, he gives us a little bit of a biography of what he experienced. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 25-28, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys. In danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardships. Through many a sleepless night. In hunger and thirst. Often without food. In cold and exposure. And apart from all other things. There's the daily pressure on me. Of the anxiety of all the churches. You think Paul had a chance to be bitter, anxious, scared, greedy, complaining, worrying, frustrated, and annoyed and impatient? Yeah. What does he say? And no matter what situation I've been in, I've learned to be content. That's a powerful... I don't think any of us can say that. Faith in God has to be enormous. Yes. But it's, it's, not, it's not so far out there that you can't experience that. I mean, Paul was a, Paul was, well, I don't want to say he was a super Christian because there's no such thing, but obviously he's an apostle, but he is also human, just like we are. And so if God could give him contentment, God can give us contentment in these things. Now, let's look at verse 13. 
because, well, let's look at verse 12. I know how to be brought low. I just kind of read the biography there from 2 Corinthians. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. I know in any every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I've learned it. I've learned it through the school of hard knocks. And then we've got Philippians 4.13, which a lot of people just quote out of context. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Probably one of the most famous passages of scripture in the book of Philippians and maybe in, in the Bible. But I want you to remember the context. What is Paul talking about here? Contentment. The secret of trusting Christ in all things, and especially when it comes to, to finances. So, what does this verse not mean? Does it mean you can fly like a bird if you wanted to? I can do all things through Christ who thinks. Some people quote that, and it's a, good, it's a good thing to quote, but it's not like this carte blanche, I can do all things. What's the context? I can learn to be content no matter what the circumstance, in all things, because how can I be content? Through Christ who does what? Strengthens me. So the issue is about contentment. Not just I, this blanket, I can do all things. Yes, in a sense, but in the context, what Paul's saying here is your true way of being content is through the power of and strength that God gives you. And that word strength is used elsewhere. That same word for strength. Um, Ephesians 6.10 Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. 2 Timothy 4.17 But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And then we have that other famous passage of Scripture where Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yes, but what is it really in context about? <coughs> Being content in all situations. His power is available to strengthen you to strengthen us, to encourage us to be strong when we feel weak. So let me just ask you guys a question. Do you guys feel weak more often than you feel strong? When you are really in, having difficulty, it's when it is absolutely <coughs> to survive. Okay. Have to have okay. Notice how I worded that, worded that question. Do you, how often do you feel weak? A lot, right? But, regardless of how you feel, what's the reality of Christ? He will strengthen you. And yes, it may change your feelings. But, 
what he's going to be giving you is not just temporary happiness, but joy, peace, contentment. And may your, <laughs> will your circumstances ever change, maybe? Maybe. Maybe not. So Christ strengthens us in any and all circumstances. So whether you're being beaten by three rods or in prison or... Paul says, I was stoned once. I think that doesn't mean he got stoned. It was, he was literally throwing stones at him. Um, they left him for dead, and they thought he was dead. Um, no matter what you're going through, good or bad, God will give you the strength to get through it so that you can experience joy and contentment. This is really related in context. What did he just say right back in verse 7? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God. What does verse 4 say? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Joy, peace, and contentment. Three different Greek words, but intertwined as far as what they mean. I think they're all intertwined. You can experience peace, joy, and contentment through the power that Christ gives you. Now, let's look at verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Share. <coughs> Some of your translations may have fellowship. My yeah, shared. It's, it's a rare Greek word. Um, it means a deep partnership of two going in the same direction. They were going in the same direction. Where was Paul? In prison. Were the Philippians in prison? So how are they sharing in his affliction if they weren't in prison? I mean, Paul's tribulation here, his, his trouble, his imprisonment, was a difficult ordeal for him to undergo. Yet the Philippian church was a joint partner in the suffering through their partnership in the gospel and through their financial giving. How they shared with Paul is they gave to him financially when he was in trouble. <coughs> so giving is intrinsically tied to the gospel. In the gospel, we see God freely giving of Jesus, and we see Jesus freely dying in our place. When we give back our tithes and offerings to the Lord, we are picturing the gospel. Our giving mirrors what Jesus did, and we can rejoice in the ability to be able to be generous in our giving like He was. Okay? Now let's read about what this gift was and how it all worked out. So in verse 15, You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. What does Paul remind them? <coughs> you were the only church in Macedonia to support me financially. In those early days, when I was in jail and even now, really, the Corinthians didn't come to my aid. The Thessalonians didn't come to my aid. Philippians, you were the only church that came to my aid 
and you shared in the giving and receiving of, of these financial gifts that, you, that you've given me. And Paul says, I really didn't even need it. What does he say there? I, I really didn't need this. <clears throat> Verse, uh, where was it? Verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. See, Paul had learned... <coughs> what did Paul say? <coughs> he had learned to be content and knew that Christ would meet all his needs. But yet he knew the spiritual blessing that giving would bring to the Philippian church. He says, I didn't really need this gift. You didn't really need to give it to me, but I don't want you to miss out on the blessing of giving. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit or the fruit that accrues to your account. That's an interesting language he uses there. The fruit of giving would add to their account. Paul uses financial language metaphorically to show that through their generosity, really the word there really kind of stresses compound interest that God would bless them with on that last day. And so Paul's saying, listen, when you give, Philippian church, and you're faithful, it's like you're accruing these blessings. And on the final day, God will reward you with that. And I don't know what that reward looks like. I don't know exactly how God does it, but Paul does say here that there is fruit that increases to your account. And then in verse 18, he says, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. <coughs> you guys have been very generous. You've taken care of my needs. You didn't have to give, but you gave out of extreme poverty. I never asked for it, but I want you to experience the joy and the blessing of giving. And how does Paul describe their giving? A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So in verse 18, Paul tells them that they had been very generous and given above and beyond what he expected. And he uses this Old Testament imagery of a fragrant and acceptable sacrifice to show the blessing of their obedience. It was pleasing to God, their giving. Um, we kind of have that same language in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. Okay, so Paul is linking financial giving to worship to a fragrant offering to the Lord that receives a spiritual blessing. And so when we practice financial stewardship through faithful giving, we are offering our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, and we are doing His, His will. Okay? And so what does Paul say in verse 19? My God will supply every need, need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What does it not say? My God will supply every want of yours. What does it say? Every need. Okay. The government. He says, my, yeah, my God will do that. But... Lest we, lest we um, put God in a box, it's a, it's a statement without qualification, is it not? My God will supply every need of yours. Does Paul say specifically how? How does God provide for your needs? 
Well, if I were to go around this room and we were to give testimony about how God provided, we'd probably have 30 or 40 different stories about how God provided. Check showed up in the mail. It was the exact amount I needed. You know, Bob, I think you were talking the other day about, you know, you've got your house under contract that you've been waiting for. and Sold today. Sold, sold today. So, I mean, you know, different things. Or, you know, I got this tax refund that was exactly what I needed. Or, or some, you know, um, I, I worked overtime. Those are ways God supplies your needs. It's not just like, sometimes I think we're waiting for God to, like, do this big thing. Um, God will supply your needs often through your job or through means. And so when he does provide for your needs, we need to remember that, that we need to praise him. So let's turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 9 for a moment. And I want to talk about seven principles. I don't, I don't want to not leave this topic of giving because Paul spends the whole last chapter, pretty much last half of the chapter, on the giving of the Philippian church. And I think it's important because out of all the churches... They were probably the poorest. They were probably the, the most poverty-stricken, and yet they gave the most. Which shows us what? Is it the amount or the heart? It's the heart and the willingness. Okay? And so Paul gives some teaching in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. It's really related. Corinthians, Philippians, Thessalonians, those were all the churches in Macedonia and Achaia. So he, th- th- there was a lot of talk that Paul did about giving to these churches because they also joined, they also pulled the resources together to give to the Jerusalem church because the Jerusalem church was struggling, and so those churches pooled their resources together to give to the to the Jerusalem church. So Paul addresses giving. So Second Corinthians nine five through eight. Let's read that. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be rich in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. All right, a couple of things here. Not a couple, seven. The principle of reaping and sowing. What does Paul say there? If you reap sparingly... Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Now, this is not prosperity gospel that says if you give money to Creflo Dollar or to Benny Hinn or to one of the televangelists, you're going to get your breakthrough miracle. That's not what he's saying. But, what? What? Oh, oh, he's having a seizure. So anyway, um, I lost my train of thought. So, sowing bountifully, reaping bountifully. There is a principle, though. What? There is a principle of reaping and sowing. If you give to God and you're generous, I believe there is a principle in the scriptures that God does bless you. Now, it may not be financial, 
but it, it may be, or it may be spiritual. But there is a principle of reaping and sowing. And so when you are generous with your resources to God, God will bless you. Now, how that happens, when that happens, that, that's up to God. But there is, a, I think there is a principle, because Paul says it right there. All right, number two. An individual, an individual choice to give is from the heart. What does he say there? Each one, verse 7, must give as he has decided in his heart. I can't make you give. On Sunday morning when we pass the offering plate, I could stand at the edge of every row and look you in the eye and say, <laughs> or I could email you every day and say, go online giving and give. Or I could say, we're going to lock the doors and let the offering plate go around again until we get what we need. Okay? That wouldn't be very effective, would it? Probably nobody would come back to church if we did something like that. So I can't make you give. Nobody can make you give. You have to individually decide you're going to give out of your own heart. Giving starts in the heart before it starts in the pocketbook. Before it starts in your checkbook, before it starts in your debit card, it starts in your heart. You've got to make that decision from the heart that you are going to give. And then number three, giving is not to be reluctant. And that word reluctant means with sorrow. I'm going to write that check, but it's going to kill me. I'm going to go online to, you know, simple give, and I'm going to set up my online account, and I'm going to be in tears while I'm doing it. Um, giving's not to be reluctant, where you, you, you suffer emotionally in giving. It's, it's not to be like, man, I, I want to give it. I don't really want to give it. That reluctance. <laughs> Number four, giving's not to be under compulsion. Um, it must be willingness. Chapter 8, verse 12 says, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. The willingness here. Paul is saying equal, not necessarily equal, equal giving, but equal sacrifice. So, again, I can't compulse you to give. Nobody can compulse you to give. There is an old story about this giving campaign at a church. And um, basically in the pews... They wired a little electrical shock when they were getting people's um, pledges, and so when some when they go when, like the the pastor say, okay, who, who this next year who's going to pledge five hundred? And then they crank up the little um, electrical shock on the on the um, pew, and somebody jump up and say, oh, okay, so you're gonna, you're going to do five hundred, and they keep increasing it. And finally, after they counted it, one of these guys, like, he, he pledged like a thousand or something like that. And, and they're like, well, what, what happened? Well, I'm telling this wrong. I think somehow he got his, he was seared to the seat of the, never mind, forget that story. I can't remember how it's, it's, not, it's not in my notes. I can't remember how it goes. Some, somehow, <clears throat> the point of the matter is, I don't remember the story, so it's probably not good to, to tell a story I don't remember. The point of the story is, Nobody can make you give. It's between you and the Lord. And by the way, I know I talk about this in the new members class, but I'll, I'll, I'll just tell you here, I don't ever see what people give. There's only one person in the church that sees that, and that's Sherry, because she's our financial secretary. 
I get a sheet every week that just has numbers, like what the, the total number was. Like this was given to building, this was given to budget, this was given to missions, this was what, you know, and, I, and that's all I see is just a number. So I don't see, I don't know who pledges as far as the building pledges. So I don't see any giving information. I don't want to see that. I don't want to know. I don't want to see. The elders don't know. The elders don't see. Uh, none of us has access to that. I don't want to have access. I don't even have access to the safe. So I don't know the combination to our church safe. I won't tell you where it is, but we do have a church safe. I don't have combination to it. I don't want the combination to it. I am also so paranoid that if you come up and hand me money, I will not accept money. I've had people do that before. When I was a youth pastor or something, somebody came up to me and said, hey, I forgot to pay such and such, and they give me 10 bucks. Do not give me money. I don't ever want to be accused of taking money. Take it to Sherry. Put it in an envelope and give it to her, but I don't, I don't want to ever, I don't want anybody to ever give me money, take money, see what you give. I don't want to know any of that stuff. That's between you and the Lord. So the point of the matter is nobody can force you to give. It's between you and the Lord. And then here's the fifth thing. God loves a cheerful giver. Our attitude is what counts, not necessarily the dollar amount. God loves a cheerful giver. Are you giving cheerfully? And we also have to remember this, too, that God will provide for all your needs. Not necessarily all your wants, but all your needs. God will provide. Um, Sometimes we think we need things that we don't really need. I would encourage you one of these days to sit down, and I probably should do this too, and our family should probably do this, especially since my wife's in the room. She's like, okay, she's going to hold me to this. We better do this. Sit down and make a list of all the things that you as a family want and all the things that you need, and just compare those two lists and see really if those wants are things you really need. God's going to provide for your your needs, not necessarily your wants. And He has riches. Um, he, will, he will provide. And then the last thing is that God blesses us so we can be a blessing to others. That's the whole reason why we give is to, to bless others and not to be stingy. Okay? All right, so let's go back to Philippians. Paul basically says to them, thank you for the great gift. You brought the gift to me through Epaphroditus. I didn't really need it. I've learned to be content, but I'm thankful you've given because it's your experience in the blessing of giving. I'm not going to cheat you out of an opportunity to give because when you give, it's a blessing. It's, a, it's an acceptable offering to the Lord. You're going to be blessed in return. God's going to supply your needs. You are the only church that partnered with me out of your extreme poverty. You've given. Thank you. And then what does verse 20 say? To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. There's a little doxology there about God's glory. That's how he ends it, with God's glory. Then the final greetings. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace. How does it end? The grace. So what is grace? What is grace? It's a word we throw around a lot, isn't it? 
God's riches at Christ's expense. That's the old, the old um, grace. Herman Bannock, who was a Dutch theologian, I like his definition. I'm going to give you two definitions that I like. One's from Herman Bavink and one's from J.I. Packer. But Herman Bavink says, Ascribe to God, grace is his voluntary, unrestrained, unmerited favor toward guilty sinners, granting them justification in life instead of the penalty of sin which they deserved. I like the fact, I like, the, I like voluntary, unrestrained, and unmerited. It's unrestrained. It's not, nobody forces God to do it. It's voluntary. He does it because he wants to do it. And it's unmerited, meaning that it's not something that we... We deserve. What do we deserve? The penalty of sin. J.I. Packer, the grace of God is love freely shown toward guilty sinners, contrary to their merit and indeed in defiance of their merit. It is God showing goodness to persons who deserve only severity and had no reason to expect anything but severity. So let me ask you a question. Semantics here. Are we undeserving sinners? No. Undeserving makes it sound like we don't deserve anything. I, I'm, I'm doing this little semantics here. You're, you're so trained to hearing we're just undeserving sinners. Well, if you're undeserving, that means you don't deserve anything. Well, yeah, you don't deserve heaven, but what do you deserve? Death, hell. So you could say, I'm a hell-deserving sinner, or I deserve, I'm an ill-deserving sinner. Now, I'm just playing around with you a little bit, but the point is, grace is not something that God is obligated to give you. You, you don't deserve it. What you do deserve is, is death. Now, let's talk about four biblical truths. This is kind of deviating from Philippians, but since we have time, I had to fill some time tonight, so I wouldn't let you out early. So, um, what is Grace. Four great biblical truths to help us understand grace. Um, before you can understand grace, you really need to understand the sinfulness of sin. You need to understand the bad news before you can understand the good news. So let's listen to David's confession of sin in Psalm 32, 1 through 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In those two verses of Scripture, David uses three Hebrew words for sin. Three specific Hebrew words for sin. And I think that these three Hebrew words really encapsulate what sin is. The first is transgression. Blessed is the one whose transgression. This means a breaking loose or tearing away from God, going astray, or rebellion. So sin, by its definition, is a rebellion. It's basically saying to God, I'm going my way, not your way. I'm rebelling against you. I'm turning my own way. It's a transgression, it's a rebellion, it's a trespass. The second word he uses there is sin. Now this word is different. It means a deviation or going wayward or falling short or missing the mark, turning from the right path. It was used, you've probably heard this before, it was used to describe how archers would shoot arrows and totally miss the target. 
So this is not so much a rebellion. This is, I'm wavering, I'm not even hitting the mark of God's righteousness. I'm, I'm falling short of God's standard. There's God's standard of holiness out there. I'm not even on the map. I'm not even close. I'm so far off. And then the third word he uses is iniquity. <coughs> this word means perversion, distortion, twisted, corrupt, or criminal with no respect for God. This describes sin as our condition. So, do we sin because we are sinners or are we sinners because we sin? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Why do we sin? Because of it's our nature. Okay? So our nature is that of being sinful. So do me a favor. Turn to Psalm 51 for a minute. We've got plenty of time, and I've only got one more page left. So you get to have some fun here. Psalm 51. This is after David commits um, adultery with Bathsheba and has her husband killed. And Nathan the prophet goes to him and says, You to man. Remember he tells the little parable about the, sh the lambs. Listen to what Dave... Look in your Bible and I want to see if you see these three words that we just looked at in verse 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. What's transgression again? Rebellion. Going his own way. Sticking it to God, basically. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, my, my nature, my my depravity, my corruption, and cleanse me from my missing the mark. Okay? Verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So when did you first become a sinner? Before birth, the moment that zygote, I don't even know how it all works. I, I mean, I know how it works. I've got two children. But I mean, the moment of conception, the moment of conception, that little baby has inherited the sin of both mom and dad. And they inherited that sin from their mom and dad. And they inherited that sin from their mom and dad. And how far did you go back? All the way to Adam. And so every single person is born already sinful. Already a sinner. And so the, we sin out of our nature. That's why we sin. I had a little child come up to me after church Sunday. Um, an eight-year-old boy. And he said, I want to know how to become a Christian. And so I presented the gospel to him. And here's what I said. I, the first question I asked him as a little boy, I said, I said, what is sin? You know what sin is? Yes, I do. It's like not doing what God wants you to do. I said, yeah, but let's be more specific. What are some sins that you have committed? Uh, have you lied to your parents? Yes. Have you stolen? No, I'm not stolen anything. Have you said a bad word? No. Have you thought a bad word? Yeah. Um, have you been bad to your sister? Yeah. I said, those are all sins, right? He goes, yeah. And I said, why do you sin? He looked at me and he went, I said, why do you sin? I said, you sin because you have a dark heart. You have a sinful heart. You, have, you were born with a heart that makes you sin, and that's why you sin. 
And so a lot of times when we talk about sin, we often focus on the outward actions, which is important. But we've got to get to the heart. Why do you commit those outward actions? Because it's your nature to do so. So Jesus not only dies for sins, he dies for sin. What's the difference? When he dies for your sin, he dies for your nature. And when he dies for your sins, he dies for the actual sins you commit out of your nature. So Jesus' death goes to the depth of who you are as far as your nature and your actions. So in order to understand grace, we need to understand sin. That we are sinners by nature and by action. In thought, word, and deed. Okay? And as a result of that sin, number two, we need to understand God's wrath. Does God have a right to hold us accountable for our sin? Are the wages of sin death? Does God have a right to show justice and wrath against sin? John 3.36, Jesus says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It remains on him. Which means what? If the wrath of God remains on him, that means it's already there. God's wrath is already remaining on that person. How do you come out of being under God's wrath? By believing in the Son. By believing in the Son. Okay. Now, number one, we're sinners by nature. We're sinners by action. And thought, word, and deed. We're deserving of God's wrath. But then, the Bible also seems to speak about a spiritual inability. John 6, 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me. Now, does that speak of permission or ability? Permission or ability? Would Jesus say, nobody can, like if some kid comes to me out of teen kid and says, Pastor Sean, can I go to the bathroom? I said, I don't know, can you? What are they asking me? They're asking me permission. But they really should say, Pastor Sean, may I use the restroom? Yes, you may. You have permission. If they say, can I, I'm like, well, yeah, you have the ability to do it, but you may not have permission to do it. Which one is Jesus speaking about here? No one has permission to come to me. Is that what he's talking about there? It's ability. Actually, the word no one can come, the word, um, the word um, no one can come, literally in the original language means no one has the inherent ability. No one can come to God unless what happens? What's the unless there? Unless God draws him. Okay, so let's turn to Ephesians for a moment. And let's just look at grace. Because I think Ephesians chapter 2 gives us the most comprehensive treatment of grace. Alright. Chapter 2, verses 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 and then verses 4 through 8. I mean 4 through 9. So Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3. And you, plural, you all, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. 
Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit does not work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, five descriptions of lostness. Five descriptions of sinfulness. And notice Paul says, this is what you were. Okay, so this is our past tense. What's the first thing he says? You were dead. What does dead mean? Yeah, dead. It doesn't say you were sick. You, you, you had a little bit of good in you. You were dead. In what? In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Remember what we talked about in Hebrews? You were dead in your rebellion. You were dead in your nature. You were dead in your iniquity. In which you once walked. It was part and parcel of your life. Following the course of the world. So what, what was your life wrapped up in? You were following the, the world. The world system. All that this world has to offer, you were wrapped up in the world. You were following the course of this world. Number three, who else were you following? The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who's he talking about there? Satan. You are also following the works of Satan. Um, 2 Corinthians says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. You are in, so you are spiritually dead. You are enslaved to the world. You're in bondage to Satan. And then notice what else he says. Number four, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. What else were we inflamed in? The passions of our, our flesh. Our passions, our sinful passions took control. And as a result, what's the last thing he says there? You were a child of wrath. Like who? The rest of mankind. So all humans... At one point in their life, because they were born sinful, as David says, did this. You were dead. You were enslaved to the world. You were enslaved to Satan. You were enslaved to your flesh. And as a result, you were a child of wrath. Which means a child of wrath means what? You deserved hell. This flows from your nature. So you're a sinner by nature and you're a sinner by action. Your nature causes your actions. You're still responsible for that. That's a pretty bad picture, isn't it? Of sin. Of inability. Can you make yourself... Or let's just say this. Can you make yourself alive? Can you save yourself from the world? Can you get out of the clutches of Satan? Can you flee yourself from your own passions? Can you go from being a child of wrath to a child of God on your own? You're helpless. Now look at verse 4. Verse 4, here's the fourth thing we need to understand. God's sovereign freedom to grant grace. Look at verses 4 through 9. How does verse 4 start? But God. Why is it important that it starts with but God? Aren't you glad there's a but God there? If we just if, if verses one through two were all or verses one through three were all we'd have, we'd walk away from here being like totally depressed. Well, goodness, I'm a child of wrath. I'm spiritually dead. I can't save myself. I'm in the clutches of Satan. Thanks a lot. But God, 
Now look at the, the wording that's used here. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace. So God reaches down in the midst of our depravity, and he makes us alive. He saves us by grace. He takes away our depravity. He takes us out of our deadness. We're no longer a child of wrath or a child of God. We've been saved from our flesh. We've been saved out of the bondage to Satan. And we're no longer following the course of this world. We're a new creation in Christ because God reached down and, and saved us by his grace. And that's how Paul wants us to remember. So turn back to Philippians. How does he end the book? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The grace. So, we are done with the book of Philippians, but let's look at the big idea. If you remember, what's the big idea of the book of Philippians? So I've kind of put this in somewhat of a short paragraph, maybe three, I think it's three sentences. It's not, I mean, big idea. I think this is what the book of Philippians is about. God has started a great work of salvation in us, and will be faithful to complete it. As citizens of heaven, we find ultimate joy when we partner with others by walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. As we passionately pursue Christ together, we are unified, joyful, prayerful, and content. We rejoice in sharing both our lives and resources with each other for the glory of God and in the power that Christ supplies. I think that's what the book's about. You can go back and look at those major themes. In other words, I think the main theme of the book of Philippians is finding joy in the gospel. So how do you do that? One of the primary ways that we can be reminded of God's joy in the gospel and His grace is to preach the gospel to ourselves on a daily basis. I've spoken about this for many years. It may be new to you. Maybe you've heard it a thousand times. What does it mean to preach the gospel to yourself every day? Does that mean you stand in the mirror and say, Thus saith the Lord, and start preaching to yourself? I mean, what, do you, what does it mean to preach the gospel to yourself? Basically, probably the best, uh, about 15 years ago when I read Jerry Bridges' book, The Discipline of Grace, he's got a chapter called Preach the Gospel to Yourself, and here's how he defines it. Um, that chapter is worth its weight in gold. Um, to preach the gospel to yourself means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness and then flee to Jesus through faith in his shed blood and righteous life. It means that you appropriate again by faith the fact that Jesus fully satisfied the law of God, that He is your propitiation, and that God's holy wrath is no longer directed toward you. So how do you preach the gospel to yourself on a daily basis? You remind yourself every day of who you are in Christ and what Christ has done. You wake up and you say, as John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, would say on his deathbed, I am a great sinner, but I have an even greater Savior. You own up to your sinfulness. I know I'm a sinner, Jesus. I know I'm going to fall short today, but I have been saved by grace. 
I was dead, you made me alive, you've given me your righteousness, you've taken away um, the, the justice that was against me, I stand accepted, I stand in your grace, today I'm going to live in the freedom of that, I've got to keep on reminding myself of that. And that's why Paul goes back and says, whatever is lovely, whatever is, is praiseworthy, constantly think about these things. That's part of preaching the gospel to yourself, is thinking about all these things that God has done for you in the gospel. And that will help you to find joy in the gospel when you're constantly reminding yourself of the gospel. All right. Questions, comments as we close out Philippians and we need to do some housekeeping. Yes, Bob. I've got a couple points. Uh, I'll start with the first one here in uh, in, uh, verse 12. Mm -hmm. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, having plenty, and being in need. He's talking about contentment. But he's not just talking about the lack of contentment when we don't have enough. I think when you have plenty, and there's several different people who've been well off in, in history. I met Robert Williams, who've committed suicide, mm -hmm. and who've had money, and they just haven't learned how to be content. Yeah. So it's really talking about being content, you know, because some people have a lot of money, and yet they're not content because yeah. they want more and more and yeah, more. Exactly. And the whole idea is contentment, whether well, you have plenty or not. And, he, yeah. and Paul had plenty at times, too. Yeah. Brings me to my second point of being well-fed and going hungry. And then you go over to, as far as the gifts, you sent a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. I think it was just more than money that they were getting. Sure. I think he was probably getting food and clothing. Sure. Sure. Uh, to me, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable to, and pleasing to God, that kind of can refer to the, the aroma of a sacrifice that God has, the sweet smell, mm -hmm. the aroma. Mm -hmm. and, and just even today, actually, I... Uh, I don't know if a lot of you know that uh, we've had a big wildfire by Haxton, mm -hmm. and we've had volunteer, we have a volunteer fire department, we've had people volunteering to run water trucks, we've had people volunteering to cook meals, we've had people doing other things besides giving money. Mm -hmm. And and I saw the whole idea in my deal is it's more on contentment in all, all frames. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point, because I think even you, you read people that win the lottery and get really, really rich, and then they end up either committing suicide or dying bankrupt because yeah. they've, they're not content. So being content with yeah. God. Yeah, and it, and it doesn't just necessarily have to be material. It could be they could be sharing food, resources themselves. It's not just monetary. It could be any type of sharing of yourself or your resources it, as it a way. You can even go past that, too. I mean, yeah, being uh, uh, content with love, yeah. hospitality, yeah. your health. I mean, it could be... Uh, con with where you are Anything. with all sorts of... Yeah, any, cir any circumstance. Yes. yes. Good. Anybody else? Okay. Yes, Sue. Bob brought up the fire. We're a shelter here. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that. What do we provide? We are an official Red Cross shelter, and what happens is... Carol Brom, who's the coordinator for the um, emergency management Red Cross here in Sterling, she will either text me or call me when the emergency management and Red Cross have determined there's a need. And then they will ask if our building's available. And it's never been where it's not, maybe on a Sunday morning or whatever. So what they do is they have, like, the first time they used us was during the flood of 2013. And the beehive... The, the senior citizen home, 
they evacuated everybody from the beehive and brought them over to a fellowship hall. So I came over here like at 1 o'clock in the morning, let them in. The Red Cross brings cots and water, and we just provide the fellowship hall, and then they have access to the showers, they have access to the heated building. Um, back during, there was a storm on I-76, and we were going to be a shelter for people that because the hotels were filling up. Um, so we really, all we really provide is just our building, the Red Cross. Now, there may be possibilities to volunteer with, like, food or things like that, but mainly it's just a, it's a shelter. So that's kind of what we, and because we have that big fellowship hall that can put a lot of cots in there and sleep a lot of people, um, that's why when you walk in the building, there is a Red Cross decal on the front of our building. Um, I need to get a phone call. The Disaster Relief of Colorado Baptist, uh, Dennis Bells, he, I, I had to take Zachary to Denver for a, an appointment today, but when I came back tonight, there was a message on my machine. Disaster Relief, he wants to know how they can help with the fire. So there's Southern Baptist Disaster Relief. These are people that are trained to go help in disasters. And that from everything from, like, chainsaws to cutting, like, if there's tornadoes, to mucking houses, if there's been floods. And so they've got people on call from churches that have been trained. So I need to call him tomorrow to see how they can come out. Because they may come out with, they have a feeding unit they come out with, this big, huge, like, RV feeding unit where they can, like, feed people. they got portable showers. They get all this stuff that they do. And this is through our state convention of Baptists. Um, they can come in. And they, all over the country, they, they, really, they, they wear these little yellow hats. But um, I need to call him tomorrow because they want to know how they can come out and help the fire. And I need to probably call Carol because usually emergency management and Red Cross call me because I'm on the list and we probably need to coordinate what's what's being done and who needs help. A lot of it happened during the flood. I was on I was really in contact a lot because we were we were so that's kind of what, what I don't know if that answers your question. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So and we're, we're we're glad to have our building be used for that. So yes just one more comment on the fire. What I've heard not really confirm it so but I think it's probably more true than not uh, there's been like 385 cattle that uh, yeah. been burned and but some of them a lot of them had to be shot because they were just partially burned yeah. and put down yeah. and then they're being buried immediately too they can't be yeah. used or anything else yeah. and uh, they've had uh, I think up to 95% containment today but I think it went back the other way when the winds picked up in the afternoon I don't know how it is now yeah and it's destroyed three structures, two by accident and one by yeah. Fleming. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I, yesterday I'd heard it was 150 cattle, but it may have increased. They had one person that had 188, and then they had some other different individuals. Yeah. Dairy cattle, I think it was 50. Yeah. So they all add up. I'm thinking the yeah. total is around yeah. that. So, so there are opportunities, like, I guess to answer your question again, Sue, like a way our church could help is if, like, they have Red Cross volunteers that come and sit with the people, but it would be really nice to have church people come and just host. Like, I've sat with people and talked with them, and we fed them water, and you can just minister to them and be there with them. Sometimes they don't want to talk to you, they want to just hang out, but it, it, if there ever was an emergency, it may be good to have our people there as well as Red Cross just to be... A, I mean, Kevin, you may know a little bit more through the fire department and how it all works and stuff. Yeah, um... So I was out on a wildfire, um, and one of the, for me, I didn't get into action for any relief or anything until 8 o'clock that night, and one of the 
so the way the way we operate when we're sent into rehab, we can't just go on our own free will. Command has to release us. Um, when we finally get into those situations, Haxon, their community has been one of the greatest. Um, we went in the fire <coughs> hall. Uh, we did not go past go. They hand us wet washcloths, and they turned to us, you sit down, you clean out your eyes. Um, because we were, um, back of my neck still hurts from being sandblasted yesterday. Hmm. Um, I wear goggles all the time. Um, the inside of them were filled up. Um, you know, it was just, that's the nature of the beast. Yeah. And I put it that way because it is a beast that we are continually to fight. Um, but inside the fire hall, it wasn't fire personnel there. It wasn't even emergency services there. It was just community members yeah. um, make sure that we had food there. Snacks were all dished out. It was, yeah. you, as soon as you got your wives cleaned out, you're good to go again. You went over and sat down. Yeah. Plates of food were there. Yeah. Um, but then before we up and left, they made sure we had at least two bottles of water, two bottles of Gatorade, uh, different fruits and snacks. That's good. And we went back out on line for another four hours after that. Well, thank you, Kevin, for your service to doing that. Yes. We appreciate what you did. And then Kalichi's kid, basically Monday, Kalichi was let out. I don't exactly know how, why they came here, but the kids were supposed to be picked up here from Kalichi. So that's what we were opened up on Monday. Um, and so, yeah. All right. Next week, we are not meeting because of spring break. So there's no activities next week because RE1's on spring break. Um, but we're done with Philippians, so we need to figure out what we want to study next. And I heard some different, I heard Revelation, but I, I vetoed that one. Um, so we, we're going to have seven weeks when we get back between when we finish and we end um, in May. And I heard James, we just did, we already did Hebrews. We did Hebrews like, we just finished up Hebrews like last, what did you say? I said first. First Peter. I heard first Peter and I heard James. Anybody got any a third? Oh yeah, yeah. We did Ecclesiastes. We just finished up Ecclesiastes, and we did. Yeah, we're doing James in our Tuesday morning. I'm mean, yeah, We're doing uh, Judges in our Tuesday morning men's study, and it's been interesting. I'd like to see something other than James because that our growth group did on, on Sunday. Oh, okay. Too long ago. Okay, so you guys just finished up James and yeah. the growth group. Okay. And didn't somebody just finish up Ruth? I could do Ruth. That's one of my favorite books of the Bible. It's one of my favorite sermon series. I did my preach through Ruth in the old building. Um, it would be, I think I can get, well, we can do Ruth. You guys want to do Ruth? I love Ruth. Um, we, may, we may have to do something afterwards, but. Ruth's a great story. It's the best short story ever told in the Bible. So, All right, Ruth, is that okay with everybody? All right, we'll do Ruth. All right, is there anything else you guys want to talk about? We've got ten minutes. Anything else you want to cuss or discuss? Or <laughs> I didn't say that, did I? All right. Well, pray for this Sunday because... Um, We've had a lot of people expressing interest in baptism and a lot of people, I think, under conviction of sin that are close to being saved. And this Sunday's 
message is from John 14, 1 through 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So I'm hoping it's pretty evangelistic. So just be praying that God draws people to himself. And if you have a non-Christian friend you want to invite, um, it would be good. Invite him every Sunday, but this Sunday, you know, from the mouth of Jesus, his famous John 14, 6. So that's what we're talking about. So, all right, well, let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Philippians. We're so um, thankful that we, we just see the joy of Paul in the partnership in the gospel with that church. And Lord, we want to experience that joy in the gospel. And we want to experience contentment. We want to be able to learn contentment in all circumstances. We want to have your peace. Uh, we don't want to be anxious or frustrated or frightened or, or greedy, Lord. We want to be content in all things. Uh, and we know that comes when we think about your gospel, when we meditate upon these glorious things, uh, Lord, when we um, pursue you, when we find in you our greatest passion, and so Lord, help us to do that. Uh, and then we know that we can do all things through, through you who gives us strength. So Jesus, thank you for your strength, thank you for your power, thank you for the way that you work in our lives, even when we don't even understand it at times, you, you always come through, and we can always count on you, and so thank you for that. Lord, uh, bless everyone this week as they go about their business and what they need to be doing and bring us back safely on Sunday uh, to worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.